Hello and welcome to the Start Here podcast for web development. My name is Dane Miller, and we're here to teach you how to build a career in web dev. You can find us online at starthere.fm. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Start Here Web Development. Thank you so much for joining me. We have a long Q&A episode today. It's going to be a ton of fun. I've got a ton of great content for you guys. But here at the beginning, I just wanted to touch on all of the different questions that we answered. I'm not going to I'm probably going to miss some, but I wasn't able to fit all the questions in the title. So I'm just going to list all the questions and then you can decide if this is an episode that's for you. So some of the questions that we cover in detail are the state of React in 2017, the best JavaScript frameworks to learn for 2017, how to split up back-end and front-end both cognitively and actually realistically in your applications, given that sometimes front-end and back-end are both complicated MVC structures in and of themselves. The next thing we discussed was what is the fastest way to learn JavaScript? And what is my advanced beginner challenge for you? The next thing we covered is how to get your first freelance clients. I actually cover both the mindset and actual real tactics that you can use. I give you two very specific tactics to close clients and close contracts. The next thing we discuss is how to charge and structure your freelance client work. How do you actually charge for client work? How do you structure it over the long term? How do you deliver client work? How does that all work? What is my what are my thoughts on that? I've been doing client work for 7 years now. I've worked with clients from $500 to $40,000 as a single person agency. So I I have tons of great advice for you on this. The next thing we discuss is how to handle ageism in the workplace. The next thing we we discuss is how to be adaptable in the face of challenge. And then at the very end, I give a little bit of a discussion on how to handle negativity in an organization and negativity, perceived negativity as a web developer. And we cover all of those topics in great detail. I really enjoyed creating this episode for you guys and it's a it's an honor to be able to produce this content for all of you so please feel free to listen and write me either on twitter or at my email uh, with any questions that you have on twitter i'm at d-a-i-n-m-i-l-l-e-r at dane miller and on email it's miller.dane at gmail.com dane spelled d-a-i-n Shoot me any questions you got, and I'm going to keep doing these Q&A episodes every couple of weeks or every month at least, so feel free to get your questions in for the next one, and I hope you enjoy. First question, what do you think of React, Angular, and Vue, and what is your view of React as it fits in to the framework ecosystem in 2017? Thanks for this question. It's a great question to kick off things. I'm going to I'm going to save my opinions for Angular and Vue in a later question because I answer in depth sort of my thoughts on other frameworks in a later question, but I'll touch on the React one here. I think React is still at the same level of importance that it's ever been. And I say that to the extent that you know, I've worked on maybe you know, a lot in upwards of almost 20 sort of JavaScript applications, and what I've noticed is it's almost always a benefit to bring React in. 
almost always. And to, you know, now if I was starting an application and I knew in my head, it would be, you know, kind of complicated on the front end, or it would have kind of a, a front end dynamic, um, UI, I would definitely say one requirement is that we bring in React, right? That's very interesting because I've never, in my past, I've never seen a technology kind of jump up to requirement level so quickly. Um, but, you know, React sort of em embodies that because it's all about the performance, right? It's all about the performance in some sense. Now, as far as how does React, so that's what I think of React, still at its level of importance, still something that I would almost require in all my projects, and it's something that I love to use. Um, so as far as how is React going to fit into the community in 2017, keep in mind React always mixes into another framework. You'll never just, you probably will very rarely just use React. It's a view layer thing, it's a sort of an efficiency play with the DOM, so there are other things on the front end that some people like to have, like the model layer. Some people like to have a, a sort of a controller, controlling layer, um, so or just a, a view model layer, right? So MVC or MVV. So keep in mind, you're always going to be mixing React into other frameworks. So that's the first thing to keep in mind, because without remembering that, you can quite easily forget that you have to be an expert in another framework and React. Right, that's very key, and I'll, I talk about that in another uh, question. But for this one, now that you kept in mind that React mixes in with other frameworks, the way I see it playing out in 2017 is very interesting. In 2017, they hope to release something called React Fiber. React Fiber is a re-implementation re of the React Core. So they hope to completely rewrite React and then ship it in 2017. They've been working on it for about 10 months now, since about April 2016. So, and apparently almost the entire team is, is working on this, and it's a re-implementation of React's core algorithm. Um, now, as far as what is the benefit of this, we're looking at more speed, more performance. What you're looking at with React is kind of a, it's almost like a kernel development situation where we as JavaScript framework and library users, we, we have to be okay with the fact that React is not likely going to be one of those frameworks like Rails that ships new features every year. Instead, like a kernel, React is kind of going to be a play of efficiency. It's going to be one of every couple years, some major optimization that completely flips the efficiency way, you know, because the people working on this are insanely smart and they're constantly thinking of really interesting ways to handle this stuff. So, but that being said, it's not a, a library that's going to ship new features all the time, right? Uh, now, that being said, there the community is so large, there's so many other libraries added on to React, like React Native, um, that not, that the React core team doesn't necessarily work on, but you can view React Native as like a cool feature that came out of React. So that will continue to happen. So I don't think, you know, there's going to be plenty of stuff to play with in 2017 as it comes to React. But keep in mind, we are kind of still waiting on this performance improvement. So that shouldn't stop you from doing React. I still think it's a requirement to use in applications. But we are waiting for this performance improvement. And we're likely going to be waiting for that until sometime in 2017.
Uh, again, all of the, the React community and ecosystem seems to be vibrant, seems to be thriving. React Native is doing really well. Other, other frameworks that mix in React, like React and Redux sort of thing, are doing very well. There are a lot of things out there around the React world that are very... That, that that identify to me that this is going to be around for a long time, right? It reminds me of the Rails type of enthusiasm. So this is something that will be here 10 years from now. You know, Rails has been here for 10 years. This is something that's going to be here for 10 years from now. So get into it now. If you've put off understanding React, get into it now. Um, trust me, if you could have gotten into Rails in 2003, I think that date is right. Um, let's just pretend it came out in 2001 or something, or 2000. If you could have gotten in at 2003, you would have had such an advantage from a hiring advantage, um, a freelancing advantage, et cetera, et cetera. So here, React, um, if you learn this really well, there are actually people that are React consultants, right? So it, it is a great skill. So it is a great skill to learn. And that's... That'll wrap up how I answer that question. So that's my view on React in 2017. Again, Google React Fiber Architecture. Read the architecture document for the new uh, for uh, that they wrote for this. Uh, it's GitHub.com slash ACDLITE ACDLite slash React hyphen Fiber hyphen Architecture. That is a very cool document to read. Next question. Now that there are a lot of JavaScript frameworks, jQuery, Angular, React, Vue, Ember, etc., what is your best take on the best path to learning JavaScript web development and which framework to look out for in 2017 as the best to learn? Cool, thanks for this question. So I still think my advice of learn a framework, not a language, is appropriate more so for JavaScript than almost any other language I can imagine because with other languages you can at least have scripts that you write that help you visualize things a little bit but JavaScript without node to interface with STD out standard out standard in um, you're kind of not even able to do that you could write some fun little you know type animation things in the Chrome console or in the Chrome browser um, I guess but a framework for JavaScript is really the best way to go because you really because you really just have that ability to visualize what you're doing, finding tutorials on uh, exactly what to build. I mean, the cool thing about frameworks to keep in mind is that tutorials are like how to build a blank app in this framework, right? How to build a blank app in this framework. Those are real-life, real-world tutorials or examples rather that will help you wrap your mind around JavaScript um, so that's the path to go if you just uh, alternatively if you just google JavaScript tutorials I found that you'll have a lot less success so if you want to learn JavaScript really quickly google how to build blank app in blank framework right how to build blank app in blank framework um, this is a, it's almost a skill to find the right tutorials, but if you just spend some time, you know, spend 30 minutes, it's not crazy to spend 30 minutes or even more, you know, per planning session of what tutorials you're going to do next, just looking online at all the available options. There's so many, I would go all the way down into Google's, you know, 10th page, 11th page, 
because you just you don't want to just concern yourself with the tutorials at the top, at the first and second page because there are these massive websites like uh, that concatenate articles and sort of get freelancers to write articles for them and then link back and so they they dominate the first pages usually um, so you want to kind of dig deeper with these tutorials I'm, I'm I know this is very basic advice but I'm referencing it because I find it surprising how few people go beyond page two right it's surprising so make sure you do just I, I sometimes I even start at page three because of media bias right so, and then as far as like, what is the best framework to learn in 2017? So I just answered, what is the best path to learn JavaScript in 2017? I still think it's frameworks and tutorials. Um, as far as like, what is the best framework specifically to use? I would say, keep an eye on React, try out Vue.js, um, keep an eye on React, use React in another framework's projects. Um, so like, for instance, I would, if I were you, learn probably Angular, Ember, Meteor, or Vue pretty expertly, if I were you. I would pick one of those and kind of learn it expertly. Then I would become an expert at integrating React into that framework. Because again, keep in mind, React is mostly the Vue layer in, in some sense. React is much less of a framework than it is a library. So it would behoove you to kind of learn one of these other big frameworks, uh, and this will also increase your JavaScript skill, but also it increases your job marketability. You're able to market yourself to certain employers much better when you have this sort of specialty. Um, so I would pick one of those big four and kind of dig in on it. There are other ones too. You could go online and find other ones. And, and really dig in on that one. So that one would be my primary focus, you know, every day, 10 to 30 to 45 minutes to an hour, no matter what, kind of immersed in the world of that framework, right? So I would have the Twitter for that framework, the hashtags like this IRC for that framework, there's the GitHub, there's huge communities around these frameworks. And I would make sure that you dig in very deeply into the community this is this is a secret that very or this is advice that very few people take. It ends up seeming like a secret to me. Most people kind of skirt around the outer edges of information. What the best way to approach this is to go deep and dive right in to the community. So immerse yourself, just so so immersively, like just immerse yourself in all their forums, any kind of place that they communicate, any kind of place they hang out. Um, you know, for Ember. I want you to, I take this so seriously, this advice, that for Ember.js, if you picked Ember, um, and, and React, so I, I told you pick one of the four, and then also React, so let's say you picked Ember plus React, or Angular plus React, so let's say it's Ember. What I would want you to do is read all of the meeting notes from all of the core team meetings on GitHub, right? Then I would want you to tell me, I would want you to be, I would I want to be able to ask you something like this. What is, y, uh, what is uh, YCAT's day job company, right? What, what is it called? Like, I would want you to know all of the, uh, the core team members of that language. And I just would want you to have all this information about this community, right? Reading the meeting notes, like going to GitHub, reading the RFC, 
looking at all the profiles on GitHub of everybody that's committing to this, looking at all of their commits, seeing what they're focused on, seeing what they're doing, looking at the repos that they're committing to outside of Ember, seeing what other things this community, you just basically want to get this massive mind map of the community and immersing yourself in this way. That's by far the fastest way I've found to do this. So my advice, learn a framework, for this question at least, uh, my advice, learn a framework, then as far as which framework to pick, pick one of the big four, Ember, Angular, Vue, Meteor. Meteor is a little question marky there and Vue is still up and coming. So I would really put a big question mark on that fourth slot and let you go online and pick one. Um, it's really not so important. It's just important that you learn one. It's more important that you learn one than any specific one that you learn, trust me. Then get good at integrating React into that framework. That means you also have to become pretty familiar and pretty expert level at React. So keep that in mind. I've studied web dev for a few months and have a good understanding of Node.js and JavaScript and can build a simple app. I am struggling though to understand how to structure my front end and back end and keep MVC separated. I know there are things like meanjs.org that can give you an out-of-the-box structure, but I feel lost when looking at all the stuff that is generated and that I don't know how to use, such as Mocha, unit testing, passport, etc. Okay, so the first thing is it sounds as though you're not asking me about how to structure stuff in the back end or front end because you use the term how to keep MVP separate MVC separated. You use that sentence. So that tells me you already understand MVC and you're already probably using a Node.js framework that gives you an MVC-like structure on the back end. And you might be using an MVC-like framework on the front end. It sounds to me, and I could be getting this question totally wrong, but you, you specifically, it, it sounds like you're asking, how do you separate the back end from the front end? And what does that divide look like? And what is the... Um, sort of what is the best way to approach those two separate megalith structures um, that, you know, in some applications, the front end and back end become equal megaliths, right? So the first piece of advice that I have here is keep in mind that adding a huge front end structure sometimes isn't the best path to go, you know, so that's not always the best path to go. Um, adding microservices is not always the, the best path to go, you know, <laughs> you really have to ask yourself, do I want to let, uh, add every call, do I want to wrap every call in HTTP? That's what you're asking yourself if you move to a microservices architecture or AMPQ or something like that. So these sort of transmit protocols, you have to wrap everything in a transmit protocol, right? So on the front end and back end, keep in mind that everything is wrapped in AJAX, right? So you're, you're going to be saving data with AJAX from the front end to the back end. So imagine them as two circles in space. And the, the front end circle only is going to communicate with the back end circle with AJAX calls that save data. And then it'll also request and fetch data as well. Um, and the way that this happens, this, this connection should really be the only connection between these two uh, pieces of your application architecture. Normally, you'll have them totally isolated. So the front end will be like a totally different folder structure. 
And in fact, a lot of people go so far as the front end is a completely separate repository. I don't necessarily recommend that. I've done that before twice and I've done it. I've not done it many more times and I don't know which I like more. It's definitely more work. It's definitely more work to have multiple repos. So, you know, you might have a huge front end repo for your app and you call it, you know, let's say it's a bidding app. So you have bidding app front end and then you have a huge repo for the back end, bidding app back end. Let's say the back end's in Node, the front end is in Ember. Um, the front end is going to have models, just like Envision. You know, these are very similar in some sense. If you use this, if you use certain frameworks, the front end and back end can be very similar, and that's really the beauty of using Rails and Ember, right? So, or um, Node and some kind of complementary Node framework on the front end, maybe. So, um, actually, Sales.js was a great Node. We used Sales.js uh, in government. And it's a great sort of Rails-like API-specific MVC stack for Node's backend. And then on top of that, you can add Ember, and it's quite nice. Um, or you can add Ember and CoffeeScript, which is also a little bit better. So then you have these two sort of areas. And the point I was trying to make there is on the backend, you already know that models connect to the database, right? So on the front end, the cool thing about using frameworks that are so synchronous like this, that match so perfectly, um, the models on the front end, guess what they're going to do? They're going to fetch data from its data source, from their data source. And their data source just happens to be the back end, right? And the back end models fetch data from its data source, which just happens to be the database. So... In this sense, it's very easy cognitively to separate these. They're in totally separate repositories or file structures. They're cognitively separated in your brain. Um, one is Rails, one is Ember. Um, if you're working in Node and JavaScript on the server and JavaScript on the front end, that can be kind of mentally more complicated I've, in my experience, which, which sounds weird. It sounds like that would be less mentally complicated, but I found Rails and Ember to be the less the, the least complicated to build massive scale app, uh, applications by far by far um, it plus it plus react so ember you know ember slash react because again react is just a library right so we want to add it to all of our projects in some sense so that's really you know some thoughts that I had and as far as you not understanding mocha unit testing passport enough of this um Enough of this mindset here, looking at all the crap that is generated, that's your quote, looking at all the crap that is generated, don't think that way. What, what is that? Get out of here with that. Learn Mocha, learn unit testing, learn Passport. I don't even know what, what, your, what mindset that is. That's not even a real thing. You need to learn those, and then you can choose to not like them, right? You can learn them and be like, ah, you know, I don't really prefer doing it this way. I, don't, I like um, Jasmine testing instead of Mocha, right? Or you might say, you know, I don't really use unit testing that much. I, I prefer kind of an integration layer testing or something like that. So after you've really learned those, uh, you can you can then have an opinion on them. But you said here that I don't know how to use. So it's not crap. You don't know how to use it. Um, invert that mindset or that will lead you down the wrong path, trust me. Your job as a front-end web developer, especially JavaScript and not even front-end, your job as a JavaScript developer 
is to be so obsessed with learning new stuff that it almost seems insane. I'm telling you right now, to be a successful JavaScript developer, you have to be so much more adaptable than any other language community I've worked in by far, by far. Every single team that I've worked on that starts a new JavaScript project, the technology is different. I've worked on maybe 19 large-scale JavaScript applications, and every time we start a new one, even if it's the same team, I haven't done this a lot, but one time I was on the same team and we did start two, one right after the other, and even then, we switch technologies. I've never worked on one that had the same technology except Node on the back end and uh, Ember on the front end. I've done that a couple times. Um, and Rails on the back end and Ember on the front end. I've done that a couple times. But every other time, it's totally different. So, so your job really is one of a, a super learner, a, program, a JavaScript super learner. So any, any of this, that's why I'm really calling out this negative, this minor, minor word that you used, crap. And I'm, ex I'm sort of blowing it up in this instance because in JavaScript, you being a super learner, part of that is predicated on a positive mindset. I don't know any super learners in any programming language or any core team members that are super negative. So that's it for that question. Next question from Alan this time. I, I haven't been reading names unless they explicitly told me I could. I This Alan said, I signed up at Free Code Camp and I don't have much success learning JavaScript. I have read countless resources online and books. Now I'm working through the Odin project. I can build a, but I still can't build a simple JS calculator using jQuery. I feel like I'm not improving and becoming a JS developer. I listened to your podcast and the motivation was encouraging. Is there any advice or resources you could share with me? I want to learn to become a web developer and I'm struggling with blah, blah, blah. Okay, so Alan, here's what you got to do. Find a framework, and I answered this in the last in one of the last questions, but I'll just re-say it again for you because you're having some problems. If you don't ever feel like, I, I actually, this is much better, so I'll say it this way. If you ever feel like you're not making enough progress learning something, it's because typically you don't have a pointed enough line that you're traveling down towards a destination, right? So if you're just like kind of trying to learn JavaScript, that, that's not even a real thing. I don't even know what that means. You know, I'm like, you're at free code camp trying to learn JavaScript by learning like VARs, like looping and stuff. I don't even know what that means, right? What you need to do is have a pointed direction that you're traveling towards a destination. And so for you, what I recommend is I would pick a framework, then find, Google how to build just and then stop and then put plus, and then my framework name. And you'll find a ton of tutorials on how to build certain applications in the framework, right? Now, what I want you to do is I call this my 10, uh, I'm kind of trying to play with the name of it, but I'm calling this my advanced beginner challenge. So then take the advanced beginner challenge, and that is to read 10 tutorials and do 25. You can do the same ones that you read, but the whole point is that you have to read the tutorials before you do them to, to gain that context, to gain that very valuable context. So read 10 tutorials, then do 25, 
And through that time, through that period, what you're going to do is you're going to continually have pointed directions that you're traveling. So the tutorials are going to be like how to build a to-do app in Ember, right? How to build a to-do app in Node.js. So these give you an implicit goal. This is like goal hacking, right? If you can't you know, you as an individual can't make your goal and then find all the resources online to get you to your goal. If you can't do that, then find other people that give you apps to build step by step and execute on their goal. Just simply do them over and over and over again. Uh, that's the best way to, to learn JavaScript. And that's the best way to not feel like you're not making progress. If you want to avoid that feeling of I'm not making progress. It's as easy as adopting somebody else's goal because a lot of people can't pick a goal and then find resources online that get them to that goal. A lot of people don't even know what goals they want. They're within that action. If I told 10 people, pick a goal and then find all the resources online to meet that goal. And I'm not talking about development. Let's say it could be, I want to be a real estate investor, anything. Most people couldn't do that. And the reason they couldn't do that is because they don't even know what the goal is. They usually, if they, if they do have a goal, it's not the correct type of goal. It's a little bit too nebulous. It's a vision. It's not a goal. You know, it's not specific. It's not measurable. And then let's say they do have that. Then they have to be good at finding resources. They have to put in the time, put in the hard work. A lot of people want things and they don't work for them. They just kind of sit around and complain. So, you know, and then beyond that, they could have the hard work. They could have the goal, but then, you know, they might not have the map. You know, they might have, uh, they might be going in the wrong direction, right? They could be looking at resources for the wrong thing. So they have to find somebody that's done it before that they can copy and sort of get their map. And so, there's so many problems with most people when it comes to this sort of process. So for you, just hack this process and say, I'm going to do 25 tutorials. But the key is the tutorials have to be how to build blank with blank framework. Right? So it's like I'm trying to get you to do like build app tutorials. So like how to build a blank web app in blank framework. That's the kind of tutorials you, you want to do for this sort of assignment of, of that because those are the most pointed goals. And also, when you're done with those tutorials, you're going to have the most fun playing with them, right? And you can even go so far as like, I want to build, it doesn't have to be an app necessarily, it could be a game. So you could say, I want to learn how to, or you could Google how to build blank, uh, like snake, how to build snake in JavaScript using Ember or React, or, you know, you could kind of find tutorials like that, how to build blank game, and you could use Google to kind of try to, to get clever with the queries such that you find all games written in Ember that you could kind of play around with, and then you go to GitHub, and you look at source code, and then you go and read the tutorials, and then you go do a bunch of the tutorials, and then you build a bunch of these games or web apps, uh, and then at the end, you're like, holy shit, I know JavaScript and I don't even really know how it happened. I just did a bunch of stuff and now I know it. That's the way to do it. It's like, don't sit back and look forward and wonder if you can or will or do like enough of that. Don't sit back and look forward. Instead, just start doing stuff. And then eventually you'll look back and be like, oh, I know it now. I don't even know how or when it happened. I just do. So, Alan, that's my assignment for you. Hope it helped.
Next question. I'd appreciate any advice you have for a person that is getting into JS web development. How does one get paid to learn when their skill set is so limited and or how to get your first gig? This is a really good question. Thanks for asking. I will try to not touch on the learning aspect of JS web development because in the past questions I've answered a bunch on like how to learn JS. Um, this one, what I would say is how do you get paid to learn when your skill set is so limited? So here's what I want you to do. Think in, when you're a ask yourself this question and try to use logic to answer it, right? You don't always need a mentor in life. Sometimes you can answer things for yourself that, that oftentimes we feel like we can't. So for you, ask yourself the question, how do I get a job in something when I have very little skills? Let me actually make sure that was your exact question. How does, yeah, how do I get paid to do something when my skill set is so limited? Now, use, let's use logic, right? What is the gist? What is the gist of this question? Most people overcomplicate simple things and undercomplicate complex things. So that's our tendency. So let's, this seems like a simple thing. Let's, let's make sure we don't overcomplicate it. So let's ask ourselves, what is the gist of this? How does one go about getting paid to do something when my skill set is so limited? Well, there's always, it seems, people that want different levels of service, right? If I was a welder, or no, let's say I was a sculptor, there would probably be people that want to buy a very basic sculpture, probably. And there would be people that would want to buy an expert's sculpture. So for you, no matter where you are on the spectrum, there's people that are probably at a on the other end of your service requesting you that you can't see because they might be budget constrained, they might need a quick hacked website, a quick hacky website just to get up and running. They might need a quick JavaScript script for just real quick for something for their job or something. And there's always somebody that needs your level of service, even if it's very basic. Now, let's say you're not even at that point. So that I will say there is some gap between you starting to learn JavaScript and then the point at, at which a beginner level service becomes viable in the market. There is a gap. So how do you cross that gap? Well, doing tutorials, as I mentioned, kind of getting that in your, in your brain, doing those tutorials and then putting them on your website, putting the, the output of them, the tutorials for how to build certain apps in JavaScript, doing those and then putting the final deployed versions on your website. And so another thing that I really want to touch on here is, is like this concept of how do you get paid to do something with very little skills? I, I, the first answer I gave you was kind of a positive one, right? That there probably are more clients for you than you can see or think there are. So that's positive. Now let me give you the negative side because there's positive and negative to everything. So for this, if we just kind of, what is the gist here of this negative of thing that you're saying? What is the negativity behind what you're saying? You're kind of asking me how, you're asking me for a trick. It, it sounds like, how do I get paid for something when I don't have much skill? 
That sounds like asking for a trick or like some kind of magical thing. What if I told you, you know what? You can't. There's no way to get paid without any skill. There's no way. Everything on earth comes down to learning more rare and valuable skills or acquiring more rare and valuable assets, right? So you have to know rare and valuable skills to get paid for them in the market. So I don't know. There maybe is no answer for you, my friend. Maybe the answer is there is no way. You just have to put in more work, learn more, get better and better, and then in the market you can get paid. Now, you know, one of my friends learned web development for two years before he felt like he was able to get paid in the market for his skill set. So for you, make sure that you're learning continuously and then at the point at which you have a skill set to offer in the market, it will become very apparent. Trust me. It's never, I've worked with a lot of students getting their first clients. It's always apparent when you're capable to go out and get paid. It's, it's very apparent, especially in development. And I'll tell you how. When you complete 10 tutorials that are like how to build this app and you literally complete them all the way to deploying them from scratch all the way to deploying them and you do that like 10 times, trust me, you will not ask me questions like this. You will just go start getting clients, right? So that's something to keep in mind. Now, that was just something that I had to mention because they're what you did actually say that in the question. Now, I'll answer the more sort of realistic question, I guess, which is how do I get my first client? So your first client, really it comes down to a couple of different tactics on how to do it. So now we're kind of moving away from strategy and mindset into tactics for this answer. So tactically, there are a number of different ways to get your foot in the door as far as clientele. Um, a couple things to keep in mind. One, every client is the most important client in the sense that as a freelancer, your life is inbound. Your life is based on your inbound. So if your clients are unhappy, that's a huge problem. It's like an end of the world type scenario for you. So you only want to choose the right clients to work with. You don't want to work with psycho clients. And you want to make sure that you deliver on the shit that you say that you will. So pick the right clients, deliver for those clients. Now, to get your first job or to get your first client, if you, if you follow those two maxims, the way I would do it is I would approach it in a couple different ways. The first tactic is, hey, I, I you know, approach somebody, um, you know, and literally, guys, when I, you know, what I did is you could just walk into local businesses in your town and be like, oh, I saw your website. Um, there's this firm next door that's charging $5,000 for website designs, but I'm a student. You know, I go to the, the community college down the street and I, I would love to do your website for $300 if you just included a testimonial for me on my, on my portfolio. If you wouldn't mind doing that, I'd be happy to to, to do your website probably won't be as good as that digital agency, but again, it'll only cost you $300 and I'll make sure that it's high quality um, and it, it, it'll look something like this and you pull up a couple examples. You'll close seven out of 10 of those, right guys? I mean, unless realistically three out of 10, but I, I'm exaggerating to make a point. That is a very 
underutilized sales tactic. Come in low. They call this a loss leader. Come in low in business to get your foot in the door. And then this person becomes a way that you build your network later. So this person, you're not trying to, you're not going to get a lot of money from this person, right? In your first couple of clients, probably that's going to be the case. You're not going to make a lot of money, but they're going to give you testimonials. Um, and because you know that they're going to give you testimonials, you're going to be more motivated to do amazing work for them. So they're going to give you testimonials. Then you're going to do amazing work. Then, or, or rather, you're going to close the contracts. You're going to, and it's like some tiny amount of money, right? $500, $300. You could send emails to remote clients or go to your hometown, the place that you live right now, walk into businesses and do this. I've done both. This is also a great way to build your sales skills and to kind of hone that talent of speaking, which is an entirely different ball game. It's an entirely different type of thing to do than to program. If you want to be a freelancer and get clients, it's much more about your soft skills. It, it Well, it's equal. I would say it's equally about your soft skills as it is about your actual programming and delivery skills. Um, so they're very important here. So now let's say you've gone into those clients, you've closed a very a loss leader contract for two, you know, three hundred to five hundred dollars, etc. Um, another tactic, and then I'll go on. Another tactic that you could use to approach clients is to give them something for free. So there's this cognitive bias called the law, or I don't know if it's bias, but uh, the law of reciprocity is kind of what it's called, which means. Well, it's the reason why business people take other people out to lunch. Because when you do somebody a favor, they implicitly, subconsciously, without even knowing it in their own mind, like they want to do something back for you. So this is why real estate real estate investors take people out to lunch. Corporate folks take their clients out to lunch, et cetera, et cetera. That's why what you want to do, if possible, is to come into the business with a free gift. So one thing that I've done is I've actually, there's software online that you can use to make logos for companies, uh, sorry, to make animated logos. So you literally upload their logo and it animates it automatically. There's, it's, you know, it's kind of expensive software, but uh, it'll animate it and then add music to it. And what I've done is you go on YouTube, find all the clients that you want to approach as a freelancer. Here's all, or let's stop calling ourselves freelancer as an as an uh, individual agency, let's just say we're an individual person agency or single person agency because you want to think of yourself as a business freelancing, I don't like. So as a single person agency, we're approaching, we, we write down all the clients we could approach. Then we find the clients that have a YouTube, video, a YouTube page where they upload videos. So it's like a dentist website where he's uploading YouTubes of him working on people. You know, it's a pediatrician's website where there's a YouTube for it, where you notice in your small town, they're uploading videos of them working with uh, whatever. And so what you want to do is then email all those people or ideally go into their business and say, hey, is the owner here? And then take your laptop and pull out your laptop and spin it around and be like, hey, look, I've got this free gift for you. I'm a developer and designer. I own a single person agency downtown. I'm a college student, but I just built this logo for you and I animated it, and it's based on your current logo, nothing changes, but I thought you could put this at the beginning of your YouTube videos, that would be really cool, and it would help brand and further your 
uh, audience by, you know, blah, 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 you, right? Some real sales pitch. Like it could increase your brand awareness, right? Something like that. And then just say, you know what? Here it is for free. I just wanted to offer it to you as a gift. I'm a, I'm a new business owner in town and I want anytime that you needed website development, I wanted you to think of me. So I figured I would bring in this gift and that way, you know, I could establish a relationship with you and hope to hope to get to know you more and hope to solve any needs that you have uh, or solve any problems that you have, say. Uh, very important to say the word problems. If you can say the word solve your problems, I will solve your problems to, to people in a sales meeting. It's very powerful. So let's say you say that monologue that I just did and you just literally hand them a thumb drive that you can get online, a very cheap thumb drive. You're like, here's the logo. It's animated. Um, here's It's a video file and it's right on this thumb drive. Totally for free. Just keep it. The only thing I ask is if you really did enjoy it, if you don't mind, I'll send you an email follow-up with my website. If you could just leave me a testimonial, that would be fantastic. You can just reply to my email and leave me a little testimonial if you enjoyed the, the logo uh, animation work. And so, and the point here, guys, isn't you can kind of leave out the testimonial piece. What you're doing here is you're you're executing the law of reciprocity. You're executing building the new relationships with people. You're executing getting brand awareness for yourself out there so that people keep you top of mind. So whenever somebody thinks of website, they think of that gift and it's boom, triggers. So you're executing on all these things. Then you're also executing on the loss leader that leads to a testimonial that is not, you know, a testimonial about a, a logo that's animated isn't necessarily as good as a testimonial about a web design, a website development project because you're a freelance web developer, JavaScript developer. But the point here is that it's social proof. No client wants to do business with somebody that doesn't have social proof. So for instance, notice that I didn't tell you to email 100 people. That wasn't my first advice. I really, really prefer if you go into a business in your local town and try to sell them that way. Because social proof is so powerful. If you just email people, you don't have a very good website, you don't have any clients on that website, you don't have any portfolio really to speak of, it's kind of weird looking, nobody's gonna take you up on that offer. But if you have that same scenario and you just show your face in a building and you show that you're a little charismatic, you don't have to be charismatic, right? Just showing your face in that building with the same shitty website, the same shitty portfolio, just you showing your face is like an implicit social contract where they view you totally differently. So they, you will close more clients this way, trust me, especially if you practice the tactics that I've outlined, the loss leader, the law of reciprocity, doing things, free giveaways, gifts for people, building your network, making sure, also spend a lot of your time on inbound. As a freelancer, spend 50% of your time on inbound and 50% of your time, so if you let's say you dedicate 25% of your overall time to marketing for new leads, 50% of that 25 should be acquiring new customers, and I see this mistake often, 50% of that time should be maintaining or continuing relationships with existing customers. So that could be sending holiday cards. 50% of my time, maybe it's sending a holiday card to all of my customers in the past, just wishing them a nice holiday. The best 
corp, uh, the best digital agencies I've ever worked with always send me birthday wishes, holiday wishes on every, every major holiday. And there's usually some kind of special thing in the email or it's a handwritten card. This is how to keep people top of mind. Right, so you're sent, you're building these relationships with people. So by sending them this holiday card, you're furthering the top of mind in their brain. So when they think of a website, and their friend is like, "Oh, well, you know, I was thinking about getting a website redesign, or, or you know, I needed my website done," uh, they think of you, right? Because they're like, "Oh, you know, I worked with this guy. He came in, he gave me this free deal. It was amazing. And then also on top of that, he did my website. It was awesome." And, you know, I think he does websites for other people now, and he sent me holiday cards. Really nice guy. Do you, wanna, do you want me to connect you with him? He was great to work with. All of that is how you want people to think of you. And if you do that and you deliver, I have to say this part because, you know, I have to cover my bases. I've given you very powerful tactics to close clients. Very powerful if you execute on those tactics, you will close many clients. Trust me, I've done it to the tune of $30,000 a client, right? So here's the thing. You have to deliver. You have to be good enough to deliver for them. I don't want you to close clients using my tactics. Or they aren't mine. Using the tactics that I've just said and not be able to deliver. If you do that, I don't want you listening to this, right? You have to deliver. And I, I'm saying this because I made this mistake. My first client, my second, no, actually my first one was good. My second client, I didn't deliver quite as well as I wanted to. And he was, he wasn't upset, but I felt bad later. I was like, you know, I could have done that website a little bit better because I was maybe a little bit unfocused. May, I, I think he was um, giving me a lot of requirements and I was like unfocused and I was kind of mentally rattled. And so I just whipped it together really quick. And I remember looking back and be like, you know, I could have spent more time focusing down on that, really kind of investing in it. Uh, but I just kind of whipped it together and gave it back to him. Um, so for you, I want to make sure you never look back and think that because you actually have somebody that's at the beginning of your career telling you not to do that. Make sure you always under underestimate and over deliver, not overestimate and under deliver. So a maxim that I live by is basically this, always have people think you did a little bit better than they thought. If, and, and this is something that one of my mentors told me that I've literally has been a game changer for me. If everything in your life, everything, your physical health, your workout, your knowledge about stuff, your email communication, your, t your phone communication, your charisma, if everything about you is just a little bit better than what people thought it would be, then you will be totally set for life. Totally set. Not, and not overnight, but this is a skill. Always be a little bit better than what people expect. And when I say think, I guess I kind of mean expect, what people expect, right? So if you go to my website, dane.io, if you go to my YouTube, slash start here FM, if you go to my, you know, or, you know, if you go to any of my stuff, or if you read my emails, or if you, you know, communicate with me on Twitter, if you go to my Twitter, it's I tr everything that I do, I try to be a little bit better than people expect. 
just a little bit better because if you do this, it's called, it's called like compounding social goodwill. Everybody looks at you and just goes, oh, wow, just a little bit better than I thought. Cool. Like, oh, I didn't expect this Twitter to be this cool. I didn't expect this YouTube to be uh, so interesting. I didn't expect this website to be so clean and and yet informative and, and perfect for the things that I need. Oh, I didn't expect... Um, this podcaster to talk about this in this way. I didn't expect what, this is why I talk about so much weird stuff for a web development podcast, because it's a little bit better than what you guys expect. You guys turn on a web development podcast and you expect me to be talking about Lambda functions and blah, blah, blah. You don't expect me to talk about the deeper issues because all the other podcasts don't do that. That's why I do it. Right? I'm trying to be a little bit better than what people expect. And trust me, trust me, trust me, if you can do that for your clients, your entire life is paved in gold. Your entire life is paved in gold. Because with that comes needing to do hard work. More hard work than the person next to you. There's a lot of stuff that comes with that. So, you know, that's why I kind of say, if you can just focus on doing that, being a little bit better your entire life is paved in gold because it will require of you to do so many other things that most people don't do, right? Not quit, continue to work hard, you know, continue to persevere, not jump around between projects, focus down, complete things, deliver things, you know, get better at selling clients, get, you know, so it leads or all of those little things, they lead to people viewing you as a little bit better than they expect. And that's how to have ultimately a great digital agency, right? A great freelance business or a great single person agency business. And I'll end this long answer there. Thanks for the question. Next question. I'm going to group together a number of questions here. I've got how to uh, books, videos, tutorials for Vue, React, JS. And then I've got question, what is the best books to look for for CSS? Guys, I wouldn't stress so much about figuring out the perfect thing just go on amazon if you so here's the thing i don't recommend books you could be the type of learner that learns best from books if that's the case and you've read managing oneself by peter drucker and you know that that's how you learn perfect here's how to do it go to amazon type in the name of the thing html then look at the author of all those books type in the author's name to google if they're an HTML badass, get the book. If they're a blank badass, get the book. So this is how you handle looking for books in anything ever. Type in the thing on Amazon. Look up the authors for the thing. Are they a badass at that thing? If so, buy the book. Stop living in scarcity. Like, should I get this book or this book? I don't know. I only have this much money, this little tiny amount to spend on this. Enough of that. Just get, a, get rid of that ridiculous scarcity mindset and just focus on, you know what? I'm going to look up the best author out of these 20 books and I'm going to get his book and that'll be awesome. And if I don't like it, whatever, I'll throw it away and get another one. It's, it's really not a huge deal, guys. Also, if you aren't somebody that learns from books, execute the same strategy in videos and other articles online, right? So Google the thing that you want to learn and then go to all the different websites and look at kind of what are they about. Like, look at all the different resources, all the videos and such. Find which ones you like the most and which ones you think are the most badass. And just stick to those. 
right? If you find one that really speaks to you, like for me back in the day, Rails casts. I thought Rails casts really spoke to me specifically because I'm a visual learner, I'm an auditory learner, a kinesthetic learner. So I, I really connected with his teaching style. So if you find somebody that you connect with, double down on that. So for me, anytime I had a question, I Googled that thing plus Railscast because I knew if I could find just one video of him talking about it, just that's it. If I could just find that, I almost wouldn't need hundreds of other resources. So for you, look around, you know, kind of find the thing that is best for you and then double down on that thing. Now, as far as like how to specifically learn more CSS and HTML, um, you did ask that as, as well. Go back to my, my answers regarding not having a goal and then regarding my, my hacking that goal by, a lot, by doing tutorials. So for you, literally, it's how to build an HTML CSS app in this uh, or that's it. How to build an HTML CSS page that does this, right? And you can also break that down in another way. You could just um, sort of say how to build a JavaScript, um, how to build in, let's say, what is a JavaScript framework that doesn't manipulate the HTML? Here, here How to build a backbone to-do app. And then in the tutorial, it'll teach you JavaScript, but just ignore that. Just, just look at the HTML and CSS. Be like, how are they doing the HTML and CSS, right? And the reason I said backbone there is because every framework these days kind of manipulates the DOM so much that it's not really appropriate for me to give that advice. But backbone doesn't. Um, so theoretically, you could just find a bunch of backbone tutorials and then just delete all the JavaScript pages and just look at the HTML and CSS and be like, how did they structure this? I'm going to copy it. And then you type it in, you copy how they did it, and then you refresh the page. You're like, oh, wow, this is cool. That's how you learn, right? Or at least for me, kinesthetic learner, that's how I learn. So if it's, if it's books for you, whatever it is, make sure you know, you're following that maxim of not stressing too much on what to, on feeling helpless, on what, there's so much stuff to do. So here's the thing, learned helplessness, Martin Seligman says, is very dangerous. This learned helplessness of having too many resources is very dangerous. So you have to get good at, in your brain, cutting through that, like a machete in the forest, cutting through that and saying, okay, but how do I figure out what to read? Oh, okay, well actually, logically, if I just type in the thing and then find authors who are really badass that solve that problem, that's a pretty good way to do it, right? So cut through that like a machete in the forest, cutting down trees or leaves, cut through that bullshit in your brain and try to focus on how to get away from the helplessness and the overwhelm and how to actually logically approach the problem. Remember, we tend to overcomplicate simple things and undercomplicate complex things. Here's a very simple thing. How do I find an HTML and CSS book? It's a very goddamn simple question. You know, excuse my cursing. That's a very, very simple question. So, Let's not overcomplicate it. Let's ask ourselves, what is the gist? And then use logic to cut through that learned helplessness and get to the answer, which is exactly what I said. Go to Amazon, look up the authors, find the one you like, buy his book. Thanks for the question. Next question. What do you think about age? Some people say that companies are looking for young people because it will be hard to get hired if you're in your late 20s or early 30s. So... 
this could be a real problem. Ageism could be a real problem. Sexism is a real problem. You know, women and minorities have problems with getting hired. Here's the thing. Focus on what you can control and don't focus on what you can't. If you just follow this advice, it'll change your life. Just focus on what you can control. This is advice not from me, but from Mar you know, Marcus Aurelius, a Roman emperor, Seneca, a philosopher, Aristotle, a, a genius. This is advice from them. It's not from me. Focus on what you can control is what they would tell you. Can you control how other companies view you and your age? No, you can't. What can you control? Oh, well, you can control your online presence, your social media, your blog posts that position you as a th thought leader in that area, your skills in JavaScript, your skills in front end, your skills in back end. All of this shit you can control, right? This goes so far in life. You know, most people working in a job feel like they can't control the chain of command above them, but actually... If you just focus on what you can control, you influence the chain of command above you. So this applies to everything in life, and it's a very deep sentence. That's why Aristotle and Marcus Aurelius and Seneca said it thousands and th over 2,000 years ago, because it's a very deep thing. It's not just a surface thing. If you can just focus on what you can control, it'll change your entire mental operating system. Enough negativity, you know... Enough fear. A lot of us are very fear-based. I am. I'm extremely fear-based. Some people just more naturally are. A lot of the times, if your childhood was a little bit traumatic, we're, our cortisol responses in um, uh, Dr. David Buss's textbook, he talks about how behavior psychology talks about how our cortisol responses are higher as adults just in normal day-to-day -day life if we had traumatic childhoods. So what happens is you know, we're more fear-based. And so what you have to do is realize that you have to kind of reduce that a little bit as far as what you can't control. And then redirect that fear. So you, so you're, so here's what Mar uh, Dr. David Buss, I can't remember if it's him or Martin Seligman, Seligman he, they say you can't really change that, right? So that's what they say. The chemistry of your brain and the biology is such that you can't really change that. Your cortisol response is always going to be a little higher, and you're always going to be a little more fear-based than everybody else. Now, how do you fix that? Here's how. I'm going to tell you this. This is a secret that I've learned that, that literally is so powerful, nobody's going to do it. Redirect that fear. Redirect that fear, right? Your fear is like a wild horse in the middle of a room with no windows or doors to escape from. Eventually, that wild horse will buck you and kill you. The only way to survive is to get on the back of the wild horse and to ride it. Redirect that fear. So here's how I do it. I'm a fear-based person, so I could spend a lot of my time in super insane anxiety and fear about other people or rather things I can't control. Or I could redirect that fear to something like this. What if I feared being embarrassed that I didn't achieve my goal? Boom. That's like the most powerful thing. What if I became, I, all my fears, all that fearful anxiety, cortisol, increased lifestyle, you know, from childhood or whatever, all that redirected to 
being so afraid of being embarrassed that I don't achieve my goals. So what I just did there is I redirected something that was harming me and I redirected it in such a way that it's now benefiting my life. So here's another way. Instead of being fearful of public speaking and that other people might, or just let's say just this podcast, instead of me putting out podcasts and being afraid of what other people might think, that's one path, things I can't control. What can I control? What if I got so afraid of putting out a podcast that wasn't good that it led me to create and put out such good material and that's it? So the fear has been redirected and now I say, oh man, if I don't put out more material, I'm not going to get better. And if I don't get better, then I'm not going to, you know, my fear is kind of um, motivating my success. So having a, an ability to, to, first of all, a lot of, it, t- it took me like five years to accept that what they said in that behavioral psychology textbook was true. So first of all, most people are not going to accept that they're fear-based. They're going to say, oh, I can change it, you know, blah, blah, blah. It took me a long time to realize that they're right. They say you can reduce it maybe 5%. So meditation and stuff like that, you can reduce it 5%, but you're always going to have a little bit more cortisol response. Um, And they found this with animals too, which is really interesting. The only way to reduce that cortisol response is with what I'm talking about. And they call this fear annihilation. So you kind of position, so horses, they put horses out next to the highway and tie them, tie them off such that they don't have that cortisol response to loud noises. Uh, So that in the Amish country, horses going down the side of the road, they don't get you know, when they hear a loud noise, they, they jump and, you know, normally horses will jump into oncoming traffic when they're pulling the wagons. So the Amish will tie them next to the highway such that it annihilates that fear memory, right? So the loud noises don't mean anything to them. So that's how you can do this. You have all this fear, 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 fear in this path, redirect that fear to be able to motivate you. And then Upon doing that, you're also creating fear annihilation memories because you're actually executing the thing that you were fearful about. So in this case, going into a bunch of different interviews, eventually you're going to get hired a couple times and then you're going to move on to another job. Then you're going to do a bunch of interviews and you're not going to get hired. Then you're going to get hired a couple times and so on and so forth. This is a normal cycle. And if you do that a lot, it'll create fear annihilation memories that say, I hear everybody's saying that everything is so sexist and everything is so ageist and, but I just started doing stuff and then now I look back and I don't really have those fears anymore because I've refocused that fear into something that motivates me to actually go and achieve the goal and then also it created this fear annihilation, right? So, and if you're a woman and you're listening to this, I really, you know, I can't even begin to understand the, the level of, um, biasness in in the workplace for you. I can't even begin to understand the the hardships that women go through um, in tech. So I can't even begin to to give advice for them. I I, I would, you know, I would be very pompous and arrogant to think that I could give advice. But what I would say is focus on what you can control. That's all the advice I can give. Again, I have no idea. I'm sure it's extremely hard. So the only thing I can say is focus on what you can control, right? Focus on that. Okay, thanks for that question. Next question, 
What were the newsletters that you recommended were good ways to keep up with the industry news for Rails and JavaScript on a previous episode? Great question. So I got those pulled up here. So I, I love these newsletters because these newsletters concatenate all of the important information every week on JavaScript and Ruby on Rails. Here they are. The first one is called JavaScript Weekly, javascriptweekly.com. Second one is called Ruby Weekly, rubyweekly.com. Those are the two that I really, I subscribe to both of them. I don't know who does them, but whoever does them is pretty badass because they're always amazing. And then if you go to the bottom, there's a ton of other newsletters that I've never seen before that I'm totally subscribing to. Go newsletter, React Status, Web Operations Weekly, Bitcoin Weekly, Node Weekly, Front End Focus Weekly, Postgres Weekly. Wow. Okay, so there's a bunch of cool stuff. I'm subscribing to all these. Because this guy, whoever it is that, that does these, he's so good. Um, every newsletter has three sections. There's a bunch of links to fascinating thought pieces. Then there's a section where there's like jobs. Then there's a section, well, even more than three. Then there's a section where there's tutorials. Then there's a section where there's like call out GitHub commits. Like he'll call out certain GitHub commits. It's so cool. So cool. Um... And then the tutorials, yeah, he even puts tutorials in there. So all of you asking me what tutorials to do, go through the archives of these items um, and you'll find a ton of tutorials. So I hope that helped. Thanks so much. Next question. How do you charge for work and what basis should pricing be calculated? Or on what basis should pricing be calculated? Thanks for this question. This is a really good one. Basically, the way I approach this is it depends entirely on my level of experience. If I'm new, I charge clients very cheap. If I'm very experienced, I charge much more. It's pretty much that simple. Charging clients, in my opinion, because as a freelancer, your whole life is inbound. If you buy into the premise that your whole life is inbound, which is a fact, your, by that, what I mean is your whole livelihood is based on the inbound leads that you generate. If you buy into that premise, then you could say that the price that you charge for client work is far more dependent on the, the type and quality of your execution than it is the project itself. So that's very important advice. Pricing is much more dependent on how well you're going to execute it than the project itself, right? So here, I'll give you a couple projects and example prices. I'm a beginner. I've never done a project before. I get a client. They want a website. It's a pizza shop. I do it. I know that I'm going to do it in WordPress, so that cheapens it because I'm not building it custom, but I'm using WordPress because I'm brand new and I don't want to do something overly complicated when I'm new. Boom, charge 500 for that, done. Client has a testimonial on my website. They have an amazing WordPress site. I buy a theme from ThemeForest for 40 bucks. I upsell it to them for 500 or whatever. Boom, done. I might even do it for 300, boom, done. Testimonial on my portfolio website, next client. Now I've got two clients. This client wants a custom website. I use WordPress again because I know WordPress is easier to work with. I can get plugins or buy plugins to do what I need. This client wants a little bit more complicated work, so I charge him 1500 bucks. 1500 is my standard for I'm building a very complicated website as a beginner in WordPress. 
If you're a beginner, meaning zero to 10 clients, and you, you're building a very complicated website in WordPress, 1500 bucks. You're gonna wanna charge more. Charge a little bit less than what your client expects, and then deliver work that's a little bit better than what they expect. This is the secret. This is the way to a path of gold. So then let's say you have five, you've had the, your new scenario. You have five clients in the past. Now you're on Rails apps. You're building a custom Rails app for a startup. It's an MVP. You tell the client this is going to be very basic. It's going to be very bare bones. You know how long a custom application takes to build. So you tell the client, you know, I'm, I'm going to build this for you, this startup, I'm going to build this MVP, and then I'm going to pass it off to your tech team, and then they can keep running with it, um, or something like that. Or let's say you're building a full application, a full custom Rails app with full design, and, and it's like, a, you know, six months of work or three months of work or something like that. Um, in that case, what you want to do every time is split the payment into multiple phases. So one, two, three or one, two, three, four payments, and have them pay a little bit at the beginning, a little bit in 25%, a little bit at 50%, and a little bit at 100%. And you can alter that a little bit, how you structure that. Then identify how much money you would need at each of those stages to sustain your lifestyle, or you know, to, to live, right, to live. So let's say you need, if it's a three-month project, and realistically, it's a four-month project. That means then you have, you know, you need $2,000 a month to live, and it's a three-month project. It has to be, you know, over $6,000 or something like that. Really, realistically, um, you know, something like that. This assumes maybe, two you have other clients as well. So, you know, maybe you say, well, I'll do the first month, I'll, I'll, I'll have um, a checkpoint three weeks in for, you know, you could even do it this way. You could do the first payment is 1500 Clients usually don't like to pay a ton at fr up front. So that's a good way to do it is like a cheaper payment up front. Then let's say 50% of the way through is a $2,000 payment. Let's say that's at month one, like month one in or something. And then 75% of the way through is another $2,000 payment, and then 100% of the way through, you deliver the client work, and then it's a $3,000 payment, right? Or something like that. Um, then you could expand that, so scale that up, right? So let's say now you've had a bunch of, you've had over 10 clients, you're working with a huge company that wants you to build a massive website. You have a team of contractors below you. You close the deal for $40,000. The first payment is like 12,000. The second payment is like 13,000. You know, stuff like this. So that structure, that model, that payment plan structure, that works perfectly in my personal experience from $750 for two weeks of work all the way to $40,000 for a month of work or less, right? So it works. I've personally experienced that entire spectrum. So I'm telling you for a fact, that exact payment structure works. And in the comments below on this episode, I'm actually going to include a web development proposal slash contract that I use to close a client for over $40,000. Now, this was just me and one other, excuse me, this was just me and one other person, the designer, I was the developer, and 
that this is the contract we used, right? So I'll include it in the thing below. You can see in the contract how we break down pricing structure. I think it's currently set for like a $20,000 client. You can change that pricing structure for a $40,000 or $10,000 or even $500 client depending on what level in your career you are. Again, I want to drive home the point that price is based more on the level you're at in your career, aka how good are you going to be able to execute for them than it is the project itself. So this advice has negative results. Uh, this advice has a negative outcome in some scenarios. Let's say you're a beginner, zero to five clients, and somebody approaches you for a very complicated custom application. Because of the advice I've just given you, your response is to walk away. Because of the advice I've just given you, your response is to walk away. It has to be. It has to be. You cannot do that. You, you want to do a in life, you want to try to win as much as possible. There's some chemistry that shows your brain changes the more you win. So it makes it easier for you to see wins in the future. So for instance, if your first client is some huge application and you fail to deliver and then the client sues you, dude, you're done. You are duns, dunsies, right? Dunzo. What you need to do is you need to have a client that is a little one with like a WordPress app where you barely have to do any coding at all and then you get a win, then you get a win and get another win, another win, it builds and builds and builds. That's how you want to approach this. Don't jump too far too soon. So I'll leave you with that. And then, oh, sorry, Tad on, he asked, what is the best way to deliver work to the client? I'll tell you, um, use GitHub for source control. Make an organization for that client, the name of their business, a GitHub organization. Make the password generic. Give them access to, uh, or sorry, make an account for that company. Then give that company admin access to that account. Then convert yourself when you're done with the project Simply go into the account and remove, delete yourself from that account, uh, that organization, delete yourself. And then as far as delivery of the, the final product, I've done Heroku or AWS, and then just I fully set up the account and then give them the login. And that's it, done. Or it's a digital ocean and I give them the login. Or it's blah, 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 and I give them the login. So the whole point, think, what can I build up for them and then give them the login. Here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to manage clients' websites forever. I've met many freelancers that got in the trap of hosting websites for their clients. You want to avoid this. You want to avoid this because it leads to this weird state where you are kind of indefinitely doing work for free. So what you want to do is kind of think about what can I build up for them and then give them complete control, aka access, and then what can I remove myself from? So GitHub, you can delete yourself from organizations. DigitalOcean, Heroku, AWS, you can just give them the keys and be like, okay, I built it, done. Like, you can pay me again to come back in and do maintenance, but I've set it up for you such that you can now hire somebody to manage it or do whatever your goal is. This is part of my goal. So, you know, I'm sure you guys all know that, but that's very important advice that I've seen go sideways on a number of really uh, good people. They got trapped in the uh, land of the living dead, as I call it, where they're hosting and doing client work but not getting paid for it. Worst place you could be. Thanks for the question. Next question. Should I revisit Rails? 
Reason being, many have said Rails and Ember, for that matter, verge on being a platform of sorts. And I wonder if that could help me get in the door at some company. Also, I would assume an entry-level Rails job would be less concerned about data structure and algorithm challenges I've experienced in JS front-end development interviews. That's a really good observation on the front-end. That's actually a fantastic observation. I'm really glad that you brought that up. Keep in mind, guys and gals, front-end and JS interviews are very algorithmic and data structure intensive. So I, it's a little interesting how that is the case, right? I found that to be quite fascinating. Um, it's fun for us that love to learn about data structures and algorithms. I love to learn about that stuff. I'm not good at it. I'm, I'm very much not good at it. I could not code a kernel, you know, I, I'm not good at data structures and algorithms, but I love, I'm like obsessed with learning about it, right? That's how you should be. But let's, let's say you're like this guy where you're like, oh, I'm a little, I'm not, I'm not very good at it. I'm having challenges in those interviews. Great observation. And what you could do is let's, let's ask ourselves, what is the gist? Okay. Well, we, we you noticed something was, was not working. You went to these JS interviews and it was too challenging. Okay understood. So let's, let's be adaptable as Richard Dawkins would say, let's be adaptable. How are we going to adapt to this situation? Okay. Well, what if we switched, pivoted to a different language and tried to go to a job interview in the next month in that language? And then if that didn't work, what if we tried something else? Now, what I will say is beware of bouncing around too much, but there is extreme value in being adaptable. So I would recommend you look at rails. Um, that being said, I would only recommend you do that after you've exhausted the challenge, like once you're sure that you need to adapt. Like for instance, if you fail five times, five JS interviews in a row, that's when I would say, you know what, let's be adaptable and let's switch to something else. Boom, rails. A month later, you're in three interviews, two of them fail, one succeeds, or let's say one goes further than any interview you've had in the past all the way up to the the executives you're talking to them and then you get declined well that's progress right so you're adaptable so you're saying oh the rails interview i made some progress i didn't get hired but i made some progress okay boom double down more rails more interviews boom you get hired right so be adaptable anything that's not working shift view everything as an experiment these js front-end development interviews it's an experiment it's not working switch Boom. If the Rails stuff isn't working, switch. Ember, boom. Like So if you just have that mentality of being able to pick things up quickly, execute on tiny experiments, go out and try things, go into these interviews, um, you'll be extremely successful because you will find one that works and you will double down on it because you know that advice. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've done something that works and didn't double down on it because nobody gave me this advice. I didn't know. I didn't know how hard it is to do anything. People think doing, doing things is so easy. Getting people to do something, whether it's your customers, your clients, whether it's employers, getting people to do stuff is very hard. It's very hard. For instance, Groupon. Groupon used to be some kind of political campaign or activism company, and they pivoted, quote unquote, to a, a, their first pivot was they got 10 people to buy a 
coupon online and then like come to their building to pick up free they bought pizza ahead of time and then as a loss leader they sold it back with a coupon at a loss and these people showed up to their building and they were downstairs literally handing out like the founders were handing out this pizza and the reason they they were so excited about that and doubled down on it and it eventually became the fastest growing company to reach a billion dollars at up until that point the reason for that was they realized how hard it was to get 10 people to do anything. How hard it is to get 10 people to do anything. So the fact that they got 10 people to the door and then gave them pizzas, boom, that's something that worked. Double down on it, double down on it, double down on it. So this double down mindset, it's, it's seriously a game changer and it's so hard for us to do as people. So hard. So if you, can, if you can approach your problems that way, okay, the JS stuff didn't work, switch to Rails. Double down on it if that works, right? If you approach things as an experiment, it helps you better identify what thing to double down on. And how do you identify what thing to double down on? What, based on what's working and what you're most curious about. That's it. Thanks for the question. Next question. This person says they... Unlike somebody who has gone to a code camp and has experienced coding for specific times every day, my experience seems fragmented. So I'm going to give you a tip that my mentor gave me that changed my life in some sense. Uh, do things for shorter, but do them more consistently. Do things for shorter, but do them more consistently. That's it. Program for a shorter amount of time on the same time every day Hack your brain such that it doesn't think it's a burden. So if you program for one hour a day and the next day you're busy, your brain's going to be like, whoa, bro, we don't have time for one hour of programming. So program for five minutes. And then the next day your brain will be like, oh, we got five minutes. No big deal. Boom, five minutes. Boom, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. So do things for shorter. Be more consistent. Thanks for the question. Okay, so that's, I got through all the questions, I believe. Now I just wanted to leave you with a few very quick points. This shouldn't even be longer than five minutes. I'm just going to say these bullet points, and then I'll, want, I'll let you kind of think about them in closing. The first one is always ask yourself, what am I doing perfectionist that I should be doing sloppy in web development? And what am I doing sloppy that I should be doing like a perfectionist. This can apply to life or web development. So for instance, most people are way too sloppy with their finances and way too perfectionist about the shirt that they wear. Invert that. That's not logical. Invert that. Be way too perfectionist with your finances and be very sloppy with what you wear. That would be more logical. That's why Mark Zuckerberg wears the same gray shirt every day. He understands the things he should be perfectionist about versus the things he should be sloppy about, right? That's why Mark Zuckerberg doesn't tweet because he understands the things that he should be sloppy about are his social media presence. The things he should be perfectionist about are growing his, you know, hundred plus billion dollar company to change the world and revolutionize internet access and et cetera, et cetera. So this is the concept that you need to, to, to also keep in mind. Next bullet point. Beware of flurries of activity in web development or life. Beware of flurries of activity. So what that means is 
In previous questions, we talked about the goals, having goals and aligning yourself on this path, this pointed line that you're traveling down. The opposite of that is something that we call flurries of activity, just doing stuff. So like if you're just learning, if I come into your life and I ask you what programming languages are you learning and you tell me what they are and then I say why and then you you can't you tell me why like oh I I like javascript oh I like rails and then I tell and then you I say to you okay that's why so you've given me what you're doing and why you're doing it then if I asked you what is the goal why are you learning JavaScript. I understand that you like it, but what is the goal? If you can't tell me the goal, or if the goal is nebulous, that's called a flurry of activity. Avoid those like the plague. Avoid flurries of activity like the plague. And it requires a lot of thinking to be able to do that. And a lot of people don't like to do that thinking. In The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, he talks about how our brains have uh, glucose sort of reserves, like we, we constantly want to reserve our glucose. So for instance, anytime I tell you to do something that requires hard thinking, or anytime you sit down at your computer to program, I bet you feel a little bit stressed out. And that's because, as Dawkins says, your brain doesn't want to expend that glucose because our brains have evo haven't evolved yet to understand anything but thousands of years ago where glucose was so valuable. You know, honey used to be the most powerful food because it restored that. And so for you, every time you program, every time you do something hard, it feels hard and it feels stressful. But you have to understand that you push through that. So you push through that and just say, you know what? A little bit stressful to do this deep thinking. It's a little bit stressful to do this programming. It's a little bit stressful for me even to record these podcasts, right? And especially to edit them. But we have to do those actions because we are not living a thousand years ago anymore. Our brains have plenty of glucose available. You can go downstairs and get a spoonful of almond butter if you really want uh, almond peanut butter if you really want to restore your glucose. You know what I mean? So we aren't living in that scarce world where honey was something we had to like search out on the plains for like hours or days before we could restore that um, or, or to kill an animal to restore that. So for us, we have much more abundant world that we're living in. So your actions have to reflect that. But the problem is, is that it still feels weird, it still feels painful still feels weird to do because our brains are from so many years ago, they haven't evolved, right? So it's really weird that we live in this time. I always, you know, wonder a thousand years from now, 2000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, what is our brain going to be like then, right? What are we going to think is weird then, you know, or what is going to feel stressful then, you know, it's so fascinating. So that was the second bullet point, beware of flurries of activity. Then the third thing that I want to lead you with, and this is just the final thing, is if you're a web developer and you're listening to this or you're an employee in any organization at all, and it doesn't even have to be web developers, I'll tell you a secret. Every person in every organization typically thinks the organization is what is the problem. So for instance, every web developer at almost every company thinks their code is legacy, their organization is not um, adaptable, that their bosses won't let them refactor, that their, and it could be true. All of what I'm saying could be true, right? So this, just let me finish my point. Everybody thinks this way. 
everybody I've ever met. Literally everybody. And the, it's only the people that have broken that, gotten out of that mindset purposefully that have, have, have overcome that. Now, let me just tell you the most important part of this. Everybody thinks that way and it could be true. Right, So it could be true that your boss isn't letting you refactor code. He's not letting you spend enough time on code quality. Um, your boss is, is making it so that deadlines are too quick. Estimates aren't right. It's all the organization's fault. It's the organization's fault. So here's the secret to how to fix that. Focus on what you can control and own and do it better than everybody else expects. And what happens is that is reflected upwards through the chain of command and laterally across the organization. Laterally, peers want to do as good as you because there's a social sort of competition aspect. Up the chain of command, people fear that you're doing better than them or that you're going to show them up and therefore they start performing even better. This is the, it's, um, there's a name for it. The something cycle, the the um, the gracious cycle, the positive cycle. So uh, there's a word for it, but let's just say it's a positive cycle. So let's say in, in your mind, try to visualize an organization, um, an organization's performance, execution, um, culture. Imagine it like a spiral that's slowly going up. It's spiraling in place, but it's slowly going up. It's going up very slowly. Most organizations, the spiral is just spinning or it's going down, meaning there are a lot of toxic people, people talking behind other people's backs. There's toxic um, attitudes of, of insecurity. There's toxic um, sort of toxic attitudes of passive aggression in organizations, a lot of toxicity. Instead, don't focus on the toxicity. Focus on what you can control and do it better than anybody else expects consistently and then slowly the spiral goes up all your peers start spiraling up all your bosses start spiraling up everybody starts spiraling up and it's not because of you it's not because of you it's simply a net result of a certain injection of energy and and you know the sort of Entropy is a real thing. Entropy is a, is a harsh reality that we live with. So your injection of energy is going to help spawn this net effect, this, this grand effect in your organization that ultimately is a winning effect. Now, how do you do that exactly? What are the, the things that you do as a developer other than just do things better than people expect? That's kind of nebulous advice. What I would say is write code that's cleaner than people expect. Your boss tells you that there is no time to refactor. Refactor a little bit at a time without him knowing. Just a little tiny bit at a time. Your boss tells you there's no time to add unit tests. When you do your next assignment, do it in the same amount of time that you've done all your other assignments, except also go home and work an extra hour and add unit tests. Do things that are right for the organization. Be a leader. And slowly, that will spiral up in this, in this way, and everything will, will increase. Everything will get better. And this can be applied to other areas of life, too, but it's especially true in organizations. Especially true in organizations. And it's very challenging. Organizations are 
probably the most challenging thing I've ever been a part of, you know, you know, technical challenges, scale, you know, moving websites to, to operate at massive scale. That's easy in comparison to having, you know, so here I'll say this scaling a website that is extremely complicated to over like a hundred million users is far easier than increasing the cultural quality on five teams that interact and that are currently toxic. That is way harder than anything else you'll ever do in life. And that it's so hard because it's impossible. There's no top-down solution to anything ever. I've never seen a top-down solution to anything ever, guys, ever. So what you have to do is start in your spot, be the, cha you know, I guess they call this be the change. It's real advice. Start in your spot, in your cubicle, do things as a leader would, do things that are good for the organization. Even if you don't have the time, do them anyway. Don't break things when you're doing them. Do everything correctly. Make less mistakes. Make fewer mistakes. Show people that you're, you're a leader. You're willing to give your opinions. You know, you're willing to, to stand up for your, co your quality of work. Other people around you will start standing up for their quality of work. The organization will go up less overall, less um, negativity, overall less passive aggression. Anytime somebody starts talking to you about somebody else behind somebody else's back or starts being passive aggressive to you, nip it in the bud, meaning don't reply to them, say to them that this is not a healthy approach that, that you're going to, you know, well, actually, there's a lot of you know, let's not talk about that. There's a lot of strategies and tactics on how to talk to coworkers that are currently being toxic. That's a whole other conversation. We won't get into that now, but just be the change within your little environment. And then slowly over time, that will ripple up and out and your organization will be much better. And I, I'm only making such a point to say, to end this episode on this topic, because I've heard maybe five emails from people in the past month where they had almost the same sentence talking about how their organization is so bad because this, this, and this, you know, no code, your code reviews aren't done the right way. This, this, and this, no inner continuous integrate, like all these problems, you start fixing the problems. You start acting as a leader. You start taking responsibility for things that aren't even your responsibility. Take responsibility for things that aren't even your responsibility. But don't do it like an asshole. Don't do it like I'm taking over something somebody else did. Don't be an asshole about it. Do it in a way that is very complimentary. Try to be complimentary about it, meaning I'm going to add value to this thing by having some responsibility over it. Not I'm taking it from my boss, you know, there's a project, I'm not going to, you know, let's say my boss and me and my lateral coworker are working on a project and it's not really getting anywhere. I'm not going to send them an email telling them that I'm taking responsibility for this because blah, blah, blah. That would be the asshole kind of approach, the bad approach. The way to do it is to just start realistically, really, like start taking little steps in the project that other people aren't doing. And then send an email to those the boss and the lateral coworker. Hey, um, you know, last week we didn't make much project progress on this project, so I went ahead and did this, this, and this. I hope you don't mind. Um, here are the next steps I've kind of laid out for everybody. Boom, done. 
You just, you just took over that project, added value in a complimentary way. You didn't hurt any of the egos of anybody on the team. And at the same time, you were able to act as a project manager to identify the next steps in that project. If you're able to convert this weird negative mindset that I see in so many hundreds of developers into a positive leadership mindset, it will change your organization in a better way. And hopefully it will change your negative mindset. I'm so sick of reading people complaining about other people. Stop, even if it's true. Even if it's true. It does not help to complain. It does not help to even for a minute complain. Observe, understand the problem, make solutions to correct it in a complimentary way that doesn't hurt egos on the team, and then slowly everybody spirals up. Hey there, just wanted to pop in real quick before you head off on your day and your busy day. I wanted to to say a few things in closing. First of all, I'm extremely grateful for all of the listeners to this podcast. I really appreciate it. If you know anybody that would be that would benefit from this podcast, feel free to send it to them, share it with them. It means a lot to me when you share the podcast and, and spread the word. Also, if you have any questions on any of the follow-up materials, any follow-up from anything we discussed, I'm always available on Twitter at D-A-I-N-M-I-L-L-E-R at Dane Miller and on via email, miller.dane at gmail.com. And really, your interaction with me on Twitter and your interaction with me via email, it really fuels me to keep going. You know, a lot of us, we have stressful lives and, and a lot of our lives aren't exactly, you know, the way that we would want. And I know that's why a lot of you guys listen to these podcasts because um, you're in another job or another industry and you want to transition into an industry that you think is more creatively fulfilling or more fulfilling like web development or you're currently a web developer and you want to level up to have a better life. And, you know, I, I'm in the same boat as you just in a different phase of my career. So your interaction with me on Twitter and your interaction via email, it really, it means the world to me and I really appreciate that. Lastly, I'll say I have a couple of different coaching programs for intermediate and advanced students that I would love to, to mention here in, at the very end. So the first thing that I offer, these, these are paid coaching programs, but they're very beneficial to students that, that go through them. Now, here's, here's how they work. The first level of coaching is for intermediate or beginners. And the way this works, guys, is I don't like to take coaching students that don't understand anything about programming yet. The way I prefer to do it is as follows. If you're a currently self-educating student in web development, meaning you're self-educating yourself, if you're able to learn, meaning you're, you're actually able to understand this stuff, so you're going on you know, watching videos on Team Treehouse, you're able to actually perform tutorials, you're actually able to do stuff, but you find you aren't making enough progress, that's where I come in. That's exactly where I come in. The way that the coaching works is I don't handhold you every step of the way, meaning I, I'm not going to sit there and teach you HTML, here's how to do this, here's how to do this every step of the way. The way it works is you come to me and you say, here's my goal. We identify a goal that you have. It could be a career or a job goal or a freelance client goal. 
And what we do is we identify a number of projects, self-education projects, and these are like real, real world projects, web development projects from my industry expertise. We ident and I, we we come up with them from scratch. I'm not copying other people's projects. And then basically, what I do is I build out a specification for each project and the overall roadmap of all the projects that you're going to complete. Then me and you identify a cadence that we can hit. And then basically you have timelines that you have to, it's like a real project at a real job. If you, if you want to understand what it's going to be like working at your web development job, then this is a great coaching program for you because we actually have a cadence of a timeline that you have to stick to throughout this project cycle. Then we'll have bi-weekly uh, Q&A calls. So meaning we'll just hop on the phone and or Skype and you'll just be able to rapid fire and ask me anything and via email as well and other things like that as well. But the key point here is that it's not a coaching program where I'm going to hold your hand and teach you HTML and CSS. I'm going to expect you to be able to go out and find tutorials but the key is the accountability, the projects, the project specifications, the the guidance from me on on your goal and how to best achieve that goal in the fastest way possible, meaning I can tell you which languages and frameworks to choose, et cetera, et cetera. So that's sort of the um, the beginner to intermediate coaching program, and that's my primary uh, coaching program that I offer. Then there's more of an advanced one. It's the same thing, same exact thing, but just simply more advanced. So people that are currently web developers, but you want to level up to that um, sort of senior engineer level, what I do is I, it's the same exact thing. I offer a number of different projects and we just basically grind through them on a set timeline and you could come home from work and then start working on your self-study. And these projects are, are way more complicated right? They're very complicated, but they will advance you into a senior developer role faster than anything else that I've seen uh, based on the students that I've worked with thus far. So if you're interested in any of those, you can email me miller.dain at gmail.com. Again, that's miller.dain at gmail.com. We can hop on the phone and see if uh, we are a good fit. I only work with students that I know for sure I can make successful. So I only work with you if I know for sure that you're committed, that you're going to follow through, and that I can make sure that I can hold you accountable and that I that I have some vibe that you'll complete this. I, I don't like to work with people uh, that are a little bit more flaky or a little bit unsure. So that's why I like to, to have the phone call and, and get to know you a little bit before we do this. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Again, feel free to email me questions totally for free. Twitter me all day questions that you have. I'm happy to answer. I'm doing this thing where I send audio replies on emails. So if you send me an email with a very, send me a very detailed question if you want. I'm sending audio replies. So, you know, it's 10 minute, 15 minute audio replies to people and they're getting a lot of value from it. So, and this is totally for free. I, I just do it because I, I'm so grateful for you listeners and, and the people that, that are actually um, helping me, uh, and helping yourself, right? We're all helping each other and we're all spiraling upwards. I really appreciate it. Have a great day.